we are saying. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Gospel Church Online. Wait, no, I don't have to say that, but out of habit, I have been saying that a lot lately. But it is really, really good to, to be back meeting together face-to-face. Um, it'll be a little bit different for me. I reckon there's been uh, plenty of mistakes made in, in my introductions and recording songs and things like that, and it's always been quite handy to just hit the, the off button, hit record again and, and go again, so there will be no second take with this one. But uh, if I had the time, I'd put together quite a long and exceptional um, blooper reel of all of our online services, but um, maybe see, see, see how we go. So. But no, so with that in mind, given that I only get one take at this, let's, let's pray. So. Uh, Lord God, I thank you that we can meet together. Uh, I thank you for the amazing opportunity and the... Uh, the gift that you give us just in, in fellowship. Uh, I pray that you would give me strength to, to preach from your word, uh, that I would be clear in what I say, but most importantly that your spirit would be at work softening our hearts and, and opening our hearts to, to give us understanding of who you are, uh, that we might respond in, in praise and worship of, of you. And so we ask this in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to be continuing on uh, in our series through the Gospel of Luke. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think it's good timing that, that we come to this passage just as we're starting to meet back together. So things are slowly returning to normal. It's not, it's not quite normal yet. This still feels a little bit weird to me, all the, the distancing and things like that. As, as Crystal and I were talking about, we're a big, big fan of the hand sanitizer and things like that. Let's just keep that forever. But, no. but, but the, the social distancing side of things is, is not, not normal, uh, not just for church, but even just as a culture, as a society. This is uh, a little bit different, the, the distancing. But, but things are slowly returning to normal uh, in a time where it's been pretty difficult for, for those of us who are... Um, not not just extroverts or people persons, but but passionate about evangelism, passionate about people. Uh, it's been a really difficult time not being able to see others face to face, not being able to uh, share our lives with, with one another. Um, but I think this is good timing that this passage, uh, even though it focuses on a, a couple of healings, uh, we'll see both in this passage and, and the start of chapter 9, a strong emphasis on evangelism, on, on reaching the lost, uh, so I think that's good timing, just as uh, society slowly returns to normal and we can start uh, not just meeting with one another, but, but reaching the culture uh, around us in a non-online kind of way. So, let, uh, yeah, that it, it won't be the uh, exclude, you know, the, um, can't think of the word, but the, the ultimate guide to evangelism. It's not going to answer all of your questions, but I think there are going to be a few uh, helpful hints as, as we go through this, this passage. Uh, so let's uh, start a little bit earlier with the two miracles at, at Luke chapter 8, verse 40. So it says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So that's a little bit different. If you remember last week uh, when John was preaching, the, the man uh, that had the legion of, of demons was healed and all the people basically request that Jesus just, just leave, just get out of here. They're, they're too freaked out by this miracle. They don't want anything to do with him. Then he goes over to the other side of the lake, back into the, uh, a Jewish region, and the crowd swarm him. They're all eager and willing to, to see him. Uh, so continuing on, verse 41 says, And there came a man named Jairus, who was, the, was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at, the feet, at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had, only, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went 
as, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So this is, this is a bit of an odd scenario. It's different than what we see in the Gospels normally. We, we have two uh, healing narratives intertwined. Normally it goes from one story to the next, to the next, to the next. Uh, this we have the two healing accounts intertwined. Um, and I think the main reason why Luke records it like this, firstly, is because that's how it happened. So Luke is recording an eyewitness account. This is what happened. Um, but I think we, we do, they are actually connected. We do learn something about the faith of the woman and the faith of Jairus in, in slightly different ways, but the, the running theme of their faith re- remains the same in these two accounts. And we'll learn that as, as the story unfolds. Uh, but so firstly, let's, let's focus on, on the woman. So Jesus is on the way to see Jairus' daughter, but then the story is interrupted by this healing. But the, the reason why it was interrupted is a little bit different than normal. Uh, normally, you know, Jesus will single someone out or go up to them and touch them, but here he was just walking along on the mission to go to see Jairus' daughter. And then Jesus didn't stop and talk to the woman. The woman didn't even stop Jesus and talk to him. She just reached out and touched the garment. She had such amazing faith that she thought, I won't even interrupt him. If, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment, that'll be enough. That'll be enough for me to be healed. But probably the, the, the more likely reason wasn't just her amazing faith, but it was because of her sickness. She, she was probably intentionally reaching out in a very secretive way, uh, just trying to, to be as low-key as possible. See, her illness was a, a continual flow of blood, so a continual menstruation that was probably embarrassing, it was probably painful, it was debilitating. But, but most importantly, what we, we can't miss here is what that meant in, in Jewish culture that she remained continually, ceremonially unclean. And her reaching out and openly talking to Jesus and, and touching him would have made him ceremonially unclean. We, we, we saw that earlier on in Luke, remember when Jesus healed the lepers and immediately they were all outraged that Jesus would actually touch lepers because now he's ceremonial un, ceremonially unclean. They're just an interesting side note as well that... This woman was ceremonially unclean, while the extreme opposite would be someone like the ruler of a synagogue, like Jairus, who is completely ritually pure, and yet both of them still needed to come to Jesus. Both of them still needed to have faith in him. It um, shows everyone's need for Christ, not just simply obeying the ceremonial law in the Jewish system. But as far as this ceremonial uncleanness goes, it's worth mentioning that this doesn't mean the same thing as sinful. It's slightly different than that. I've I've had um, in my many conversations with with atheists uh, in the lab um, talking about this old covenant system. It would shame women for things uh, like their periods that uh, the Old Testament system deemed it sinful. But it doesn't. There, there were all sorts of things that were morally acceptable that still made people ceremonially unclean. If, you know, back in those days, you couldn't ring up the undertaker. If you had someone in your family that died, you would have to get rid of the body yourself, and after touching it, you would be unclean. Didn't didn't mean it was sinful. Didn't mean that you did anything wrong. You were just unclean, and it would be for a period of around a week, and then you could go back to the temple again, and everything would return to normal. The problem for this 
woman and her illness was that she was continually separated from the temple system, continually isolated from what it meant to be just a regular person in, in Jewish culture. So she was separated from the temple, separated from partaking in the festivals and the sacrificial systems. Uh, so it was just life as a Jew in that situation would have been horrendously isolating. And then, then you throw on top of that that she's probably not going to be able to have any kids. There, weren't, there wasn't a pension set up by the Roman system. There wasn't nursing homes. You were probably just going to have to grow old and become a beggar. That, that was her future. Complete <coughs> social isolation... And so in this low-key way, she reaches out to Jesus in a way that doesn't draw attention to herself. And so Jesus recognises her faith, recognises how amazing her faith is to just reach out and touch the garment. But, but what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't leave our faith as it is. You know, she, she has some faith but Jesus wants to transform it into an even greater faith. She recognizes, he recognises that she trusts him. She, she knows who he is, that he's someone who is sent by God, that can and does have the power to, to heal her. But now Jesus wants to transform her into someone who is bold and speaks out and is out in the open about the goodness of God and about her faith. And it's a pretty odd way in which he did it. Right? He, didn't, he didn't just turn around and go, you there, and, and point her out and, and immediately get her to, to speak. Instead, uh, look down in verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, uh, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Uh, now, first of all, Jesus did know what was going on here when, when he asked the question, Who touched me? I, I did read a commentary that said that Jesus wasn't actually sure who had touched him. Immediately ignored that commentary. Jesus knew. Right? Jesus knew what was going on here. He knew... Uh, I mean, and, and I, don't, I don't understand at all the, the fact that he felt power leaving him as he, as he got touched, as someone was healed. I don't fully understand that. I, I don't think we'll ever fully grasp what it meant to be both God and man and be able to work through the power of the Spirit. I don't understand what he was feeling at that stage, but I'm very confident that he knew what was going on. But he openly asked, he, he sets things up in a way... To, to get her to increase her faith, to, to be bold and proclaim what God has done. So he asked the question instead, who touched me? She already had faith. She already believed that Jesus could heal her. But despite being shy and timid and not wanting to draw attention to herself, Jesus calls her to proclaim to the entire crowd what he's done. And, and, and that's exactly what he calls us to do as well, right? Not just to trust in him for healing and for salvation, but to tell everyone, to proclaim the goodness of God. So you might have a, a similar temperament to this woman, wanting to go about your day just not interrupting anyone. I, I don't want to put anyone you know, out of their way. I don't want to draw attention to myself, so it's just easier if I remain silent. You know, that, that way I won't be a bother to people. But God calls you to speak. 
not, not to draw attention to yourself, but to proclaim the goodness of God. This woman was healed with a, a physical illness that, that plagued her for 12 years. We've, we've had a lifetime of sin that God has wiped out in Christ. You know, God, God has healed this woman physically and God has saved our eternal souls. It just makes sense that we would openly proclaim that. If God has been so good to us, how could we not openly share that? He hasn't just saved our physical bodies, he's saved our souls. And I know evangelism and sharing the gospel and being open with people comes easier to some people than it does to others, but, but we see in this example here, even the most shy, timid person can openly proclaim the goodness of God. And we're all called to proclaim what he's done. And then the story all of a sudden takes a, a, a dark turn. This delay in, in healing the woman, questioning her, getting her to open up about what's happened has slowed down the process of getting to uh, Jairus' house to see Jairus' daughter. And now it's too late. Jairus' daughter has died. And we, we don't actually... The, the, the passage doesn't uh, give us Jairus' reaction, uh, but, I mean, we can... It's not really hard to work out. The complete devastation... You're so close. You've got this miracle worker who's about to come. He's agreed to come and see my daughter. She's going to be healed. It's all going to be okay. But then he, he stopped and he helped this other woman that wasn't a life and death situation and now my daughter's dead. I mean, you know, Jesus healing the sick, that, that would have been doable, but not now. Not now that she's dead. That's, that's a step too far, right? But, but we don't actually get to see his reaction because... Already Jesus jumps in. As soon as Jairus hears the news, Jesus encourages him to believe. And then later on we see when Jesus enters the house, he says that the girl isn't dead but merely asleep. And again, a side note, Jesus wasn't mistaken there. He didn't actually believe that she was just asleep and that everyone else was wrong and that she was dead. She, she was dead. But the New Testament describes those who have died as merely asleep because we know the resurrection power that comes with knowing Christ. But the people respond with mockery because they don't get what he's saying. They don't understand what he can do. And we're not, I'm not really sure if Jairus was included in this group, whether he was mocking. He was definitely one of the people that was mourning. Uh, but we're, we're kind of told just in general the group of people mocked him when he said that the, door, that the girl was, was merely asleep. So there's a tension here. Did, did Jairus have faith? Uh, the, the answer is sort of, or yes and no. I mean, he, he obviously believed that Jesus was sent by God. He obviously believed... He, he wasn't a Pharisee. He didn't, didn't reject Jesus outright. He, he knew that Jesus could do something. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone and found him. So he must have had some faith in Jesus. He invited him to his house. He's kind of like the, the, the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He's still in the process of, of fully grasping who Jesus is. He's got a big picture of Jesus, but not the biggest picture he could possibly have. His faith still needs to grow. And it's interesting that both of these miracles, both of the, uh, in this passage, they both involve the recipient having faith, 
but, but both in a different kind of way and in a way that it needs to change and develop and grow. So the woman needed faith that made her come out of her shell to show boldness and proclaim God's goodness. And, and then Jairus needed a faith that, that held on even when things didn't go to plan. Faith that doesn't waver even in the worst possible circumstances. The Jairus had faith, but Jesus called him to increase that faith. So just, just getting back to, to verse 49, it says, While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing, hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. How, how difficult is, is that? Not to just uh, trust that God will do what's right, do what's best for us. But also trust that God's timing in the, is the best as well. See, we, we want God to intervene, but we always want God to intervene according to our timeline, according to our plan. We want everything to go according to the way that we've mapped things out in our head. But, but stopping and answering this woman's plea for help, stopping and healing this woman, has completely stuffed up Jairus's timeline of how he wanted the events to go. Jesus was on the way there to heal the daughter. In hindsight, it all makes sense, but obviously he didn't get to uh, know exactly what was going on. But I mean, we're, we're pretty much the same. We, well, I know for me, I'm, we're willing to trust Jesus as long as he does what we want, as long as he answers our prayers in a certain way, as long as he does things in our timing. So does, does that make your faith waver when things don't go according to plan, when, when you think you have your life all mapped out? I mean, it's, it's pretty easy when when things are going well, but when things don't go according to, according to plan. I mean, what about this year? You know, how, how have your plans for this year worked out? Is, is this what we had in mind? Anyone? New Year's resolution, let's have a global pandemic. Right? It, 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 it hasn't gone to plan. We, we, we didn't say, let's organise a few months of online services where we, we don't get to meet together. You know, no travelling, no... You know, so many friends that we could have caught up with that we didn't get to see, not seeing relatives, uh, you know, un unsaved friends that you know I got to have plenty of good conversations with, all of a sudden not being able to see them. And you go, what's God doing in, in all of that? that? That isn't what I had planned. I mean, you know, f for me, uh, you know, I, I didn't have it planned out that I was going to be spending months working on the farm. It, it's been, been great, but it wasn't what I had planned out. And so uh, we need to have a faith that still trusts God even when my plans don't work out. You know, we slowly realise that, that God is sovereign and, and we are not. But that, that really tests where our faith actually is. Are we, are we trusting in our own ability to control absolutely everything, our own ability to, to be the master over our own life? And then when all of that's stripped away, that really reveals how much faith we have in God. But then we see that God's timing is far better than our own. There's a reason why we should be having faith in him and not in our own abilities to control our own lives. Because look, look, look at what happens when Jesus gets there. This is in, in verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. So John mentioned last week that, that Jesus kept ramping up the miracles, that 
you know, things get more and more crazy, more and more impressive, that Jesus even has power over the creation. You know, that, it, that there can be a storm and Jesus can still that storm in an instant. And then we saw that Jesus has power over Satan and demons and all the spiritual forces in the world. Jesus has control over that. But now, this is another level. Jesus has power over the grave, over death, over resurrection. Such power that he can raise the dead. But then there's a pretty odd request from Jesus. That, that, and we do see this throughout the Gospels. There's a few other examples where it happens. But in, in verse 56, which is an, an odd verse to have in a, in, well, while I'm talking about being bold and proclaiming God's goodness, and we'll get to uh, more, of, uh, more evangelism in, in a moment. But verse 56, And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Don't tell anyone. Right? Imagine how hard that would be. You're, you're Jairus. And, you know, you go and get this healer to come and heal your daughter, but it's too late, she's died. You know, you're, you're absolutely broken-hearted. You've just lost your only daughter. And in an instant, she's alive again. You know, you, you're completely lost for words. You're astounded, you're amazed. You go from complete horror and despair to probably the greatest day of your entire life. And the guy says, oh, and by the way, just keep this to yourself. Like, are you really going to do that? And actually, that's what we see most of the time in the other examples in the Gospels. Jesus will tell someone, now, whatever you do, don't go and tell everyone. And immediately they left and told everyone. It's kind of a, yeah, continual theme there. But So why, why does he do this, though? Why would he tell them not to go and tell others? And, and, I, and I think a lot of people are going to know as well. There, there, were a lot, you know, there weren't just the parents that knew. There were the whole family. Um, mourners were all there outside the house. They all, they all knew what had happened. So even if the parents kept it to themselves, I'm, I'm pretty sure the word is getting out. But why does he do this? Well, some of the time, uh, Jesus told people to, to keep what had happened to themselves because they first needed to say, go and see uh, a priest. So when, when Jesus would uh, heal the lepers, there was strict Levitical laws that they had to follow. Go and see the priests, go and do the washings, go and do the sacrifices. They, you know, they had to follow strict protocol. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case here. Uh, you know, the, the Levitical laws don't cover what you should do in the case of your daughter being raised from the dead. But some of the time as well, uh, Jesus tells them to keep it to themselves because he's already being mobbed. The, the, his fame is spreading. People are coming from everywhere to get healed to the point in which he can't even continue his ministry. He can't preach. He can't even step outside of his house just without being mobbed by the crowds. Um, I, I think this case is sort of like that, um, but I think it's, it's a little bit different as well. It's that he doesn't want the wrong message to spread. We'll see him in the next passage focus on the proclamation of the gospel. So, I mean, the good news isn't simply that Jesus can raise this girl from the dead. That, that is good news, but there's even better news than that. But pe people often in the gospels get, get too caught up in the miracles themselves in, instead of what they verify and what they point towards. Like, think of the, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does this amazing miracle uh, to, to feed the 5,000, and they start following him. They, they return because they love the fact that they were well fed. They love the fact that there's miracles. And then Jesus has to go and start preaching. And we, we, we didn't sign up for that. We want the food. We want the miracles. We just don't want Jesus preaching to go with it. And then what happens when he starts preaching? 
they all they all leave. He's basically left from five thousand down to about twelve disciples. But see, this awesome miracle shows us so much more than just simply the fact that Jesus is able to perform this miracle. It, it, it proves his identity, that, that he is God's Messiah come down to save us. It, it proves that he's the one who died for us. It, it proves that he's the one that has the power over the grave. He can raise himself from the dead. He can raise this girl from the dead. He can raise others from the dead. This is why we're confident in the gospel. This is why we know that we have eternal life. We know that we'll one day have a glorified body. And, you know, John mentioned that our citizenship is in the new heavens and the new earth when everything will be fixed. Why do we trust in that? Why would we believe that this broken world is ever going to be fixed? Because we believe in a saviour that can raise the dead, that he can transform dead things and make them alive. And that's the message that he wants to keep central, that the kingdom of God has arrived, where, where Jesus reigns as Messiah, where our, our ruler has power over the grave, where only life will dwell one day. So in these two miracle accounts, it's not just that Jesus is calling some people to be vocal and some people to proclaim the goodness of God while other people get to remain silent. You, you don't get out of evangelism that easy. He's, he's not saying some people have to evangelise, some people don't. It's that we loudly proclaim God's goodness. But we're also meant to be vocal about the right things. It, it would be so easy for these parents to just forget who Jesus is and just go, isn't this great that that my daughter was raised from the dead, but forgot to mention who did it and, and, and why he came and who his identity is and what he's done. And that's pretty easy for us to do, right? Our, our tendency as Christians is to get distracted by secondary issues, to argue about side issues. I mean, we're, we're really good at doing that within the church, right? We, we like uh, debating and dividing over secondary issues instead of the fact that the gospel unites us all. But, but I think we're also pretty good at doing that even outside the church as well, arguing secondary issues with unbelievers. It, it's okay for us to proclaim that God can heal the sick and he can raise the dead, but it's not our primary message. And, and I mean, I, I know personally I, I got caught up in those side issues a lot. You know, working in a science lab, spent far too much time discussing creation versus evolution or the evidence for God's existence... You know, all those things are fine. It's, it's okay to answer those type of questions. But our main message, you know, we, we should be known as those people that won't stop talking about Jesus. They won't stop talking about this guy that died for their sins and rose again from the dead. That, that's our primary message that we need to focus on. I mean, as the church, you know, we, we believe that God invented marriage. He invented it to be between a man and a woman for life. It's okay for Christians to defend that. It's okay for Christians to be involved in the political sphere. But that's not our primary message. Our primary message isn't you know, God's moral law that we all want our society to, to uphold. Yeah, and, and again, I'm, I'm grateful for those that um, you know, have been very vocal in the political sphere, doing all those things. But I do wish that Christians were even louder proclaiming Jesus. Proclaiming that he's the saviour of sinners. So it's worth thinking about. What, what are the things that distract you from the gospel? E- even good things. You know, when, when you talk to unbelievers, if you talk to them about what you're learning in church or talk to them about the things that are important to you, moral issues, ethical issues, social issues, whatever it is, 
do they become a distraction from the gospel? Do, do those people walk away knowing your moral view on something, but they don't know that Jesus died for them and rose again from the dead? Let's, yeah, keep, keep that in mind with our, our conversations. And I, and I know that um, for me personally, I'm, I'm ve- more than capable of being distracted by these secondary issues. But Jesus wants us to not necessarily remain silent on all those issues, but, but proclaim the gospel even louder. And so that's a good segue into the next section. The final section of this passage uh, is Luke chapter 9, where Jesus sends his disciples. It says he sends them to, in verse 2, to proclaim the kingdom of God, and in verse 6, preaching the gospel. So in these healing miracles, we, we don't just see uh, a miracle worker for those who have faith in him. We see a saviour who sends us. He gets us to act on our faith by going and proclaiming the gospel. And so we've, we've already seen a few helpful hints in, in the healing accounts so far. But, but we're actually going to learn a whole lot more. Just, just in these, these short six verses, there's going to be uh, helpful hints of, of uh, sort of guidelines for evangelism. Uh, so I'll just read the, the start of chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Okay, so the first thing that we see is they are sent with the power and authority that comes from Jesus. Now, there are obviously some differences between us and the disciples. We don't have all authority over all demons, the ability to cure all diseases. Jesus gave these disciples out uh, out of the ordinary power and authority specifically for this short-term mission. And it was a little bit of a different approach than um, some modern missions or even what we see in, in the book of Acts where, where you know, Paul would set up shop and be at a church for, for several years. Here it was a going town-to-town, very short-term mission approach. And so even though there are these few differences, uh, there, are, there are a lot more similarities. The, the, the main and obvious thing is that we still have power and authority from Jesus. We're not undertaking our own mission. This is God's mission and he calls us to participate. And that that makes evangelism much less daunting, right? It's already a a scary thing. And yet we've been sent by God. This isn't something that we're doing off our own authority. We have been sent as messengers from God. And the very same Holy Spirit that was at work then when the disciples were going and proclaiming the kingdom of God and doing these amazing works, that very same Holy Spirit has not changed. It's still here today working in people's hearts. And so when you proclaim the gospel to someone, you're not doing it in your own strength, in your own power. You don't have the ability to change anyone's hearts. I mean, that, that's what we're relying on, right? That, that, that someone who is hard-hearted, stony-hearted, rejects the gospel, would all of a sudden love Jesus and desire to follow him 
all the days of their lives. We, we don't have the power to make anyone do that. We can't change someone's mind on that. The Holy Spirit has to be at work. And, and on the one hand, you go, well, that leaves me powerless. You know, I, I, don't, I can't change anyone. But, but that's fine. You, you, you probably couldn't anyway. But you, ha- you now have the added bonus of the Holy Spirit that does have the ability to change people's hearts. So that means we have the most powerful message in the world. We have the only message in which the Holy Spirit transforms human hearts. So we have no reason to be timid or to be the opposite and be bashful and try and preach in our own strength. We simply have to be faithful messengers and let God do the work of saving people. He has the power to to change and to save people. Okay, so next they're told not to pack everything and not to go house to house. Right, a bit of an odd one. And, and this doesn't directly apply to us because our, our mission, or at least for, for most of us, our mission isn't going and travelling around from town to town. Our mission can be while we're at home, while we're at work, while we're visiting friends and family. But, but there are still principles that we can apply from this. So we're to serve others while we're on mission to them to not be a burden to them. And so, and so this, this passage about going from house to house, that was really common uh, back then for religious missionaries when they were proselytising. Basically, their, their mode of operation was to go from house to house begging for money, uh, but pretty much con artists and, and people that were yeah, trying to extort people for money. And the way in which they would do that was you know, stay with someone until they could get some money out of them and then move to the next house until they could get something out of them and then move to the next, to the next, to the next. And that was the way in which they do it. Whereas Jesus says, don't be like them. Pick a place, find someone who welcomes you, serve them, stay with them. Your main aim is not to exploit people. But they also weren't to pack. They were, they were to trust that God would provide. Even without resorting to going house to house begging They still knew that God would provide. It's worth pointing out that Jesus is preparing them for short-term mission. So these verses aren't saying if if you're moving to another country to be on the mission field, it's not saying you should never buy a house, you should never get set up there. Um, You know, this is just when they're going from town to town. So to find somewhere where they could stay and where they could serve, they would invest into people's lives by staying in that one house, invest into the people they were trying to reach. They didn't see people as targets for their evangelism, someone they could get something out of or exploit. And I mean, that that sounds pretty easy to us, right? That's a pretty obvious take-home message. Don't exploit people that you're trying to evangelise. But it's actually pretty unusual. Like, everyone is selling something. Everyone wants something out of you. If you stop someone on the street and, and try and offer them the gospel, most of the time they'll say, what's the catch? I mean, and, and I did have that one time. I had, I had a, a guy, this was uh, when I was involved in, in street ministry, uh, a guy who just couldn't get around the concept that I was offering him the gospel, but he didn't, but that I didn't want something from him. He's like, well, but what's the catch? Like, so you want me to, to join your church? Like, no, you don't have to join my church. It's like, okay, but, but where do you want me to give the money? Kind of thing. Like, what, what are you trying to get out of me? And, and he just couldn't get around the fact that I was okay with him believing the gospel, getting saved, and that he would not come to my church. I wouldn't get any money out of him, that I might not ever see him ever again, except he'd get to have eternal life. And he'd still go, okay, 
But why? What, what do you want out of me, though? And, just, and, and that's because everyone is trying to sell something. And so this is, this is actually quite countercultural if we reach people with the gospel and serve them not out of self-interest, purely for their benefit, purely for the glory of God, that God would save someone else. So we invest time and effort and energy into serving others, not demanding it from them. And so the last example I gave um, yeah, about that guy was uh, when I was involved in, in street evangelism, which I, I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with handing someone a tract. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But we do see here that, that God calls us to more than just quick drive-by evangelism. You know, drive by as fast as you can, you know, chuck a few tracks out the window. Okay, let's go, move, 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 before they ask us a difficult question. Here we see that God calls us to invest time and effort into serving people, staying with them. Not to get free stuff. You know, and, and, you know, it's, it's okay if you have short-term conversations. It's okay if you're sitting next to someone on a plane and you get that opportunity to quickly throw out a line or share the gospel with them and that you don't get to follow it up, you don't get to invest time into them. That's okay. It's better than not saying anything. But, but we see that the aim here is a little longer term than that, staying with people. And then there's the other extreme, right? This is what we're prone to doing. The Bible tells us not to go to one extreme and go, okay, let's swing all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum, which is when we invest all of our time and energy into reaching one person who doesn't want anything to do with the gospel. Jesus tells his disciples that if they don't receive you, depart and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So it's a, it's a symbol of judgment against them. Reje rejecting God's messengers means that they're actually rejecting God. And, and that, that's good to keep in mind. If people reject you when you share the gospel with them, their, their problem isn't with you. You don't need to take it personally. They're, ultimately, their problem is with God, which should actually just cause us to pray for them. But we have to be really careful and strike a balance here. This doesn't mean that we give up on people the moment that they reject the gospel. Because every single one of us were once unbelievers. Every single one of us rejected the gospel and God didn't give up on us. God pursued us and called us and saved us with the gospel. So this doesn't mean the moment that they reject you the very first time, go, oh, well, I tried, okay, I'll be off now. It's, it's more than that. No one is too far gone to be saved. As I said, we, we need the Holy Spirit to transform us so anyone can be saved in an instant. So if you've got a loved one that you're praying for and they have rejected the gospel, keep witnessing to them, keep loving them, keep serving them, keep praying for them, because while they still draw breath, God can save them. But, but there is an interesting warning here, not to get so caught up in badgering them over and over and over when they've clearly said they don't want to hear about it. It's maybe important to spend time and effort and energy serving other people, while, of course, continuing to pray for them and serving them and loving them. It's a difficult balance. Okay, so finally it says, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. See, evangelism isn't something that's for some believers and not for others. It's not only, not only for those who are bold and, and extroverted, or in my case, opinionated. Uh, it, it's, it's for everyone. Everyone who has experienced the goodness of God in salvation. Right, that, that's going to look different 
with our different personalities, our different way of speaking, it's going to be different. But the, the end goal of just proclaiming that God is good and has saved us in Christ, that remains the same. You know, and it's not just short-term missions. Sometimes it's short-term missions. Sometimes it's going into people's houses. Sometimes it's long-term overseas missions. Sometimes it's just our regular run-of-the-mill day-to-day, going to the shops, getting a job, whatever it is. Here it says, they were preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere is the mission field. We are constantly on mission. We are constantly called to preach the gospel. It's not just a small portion of the Christian life that, that you know, takes up a, a two-year missionary journey and then we come back home and, and do nothing. There isn't a, a magic formula to saying the right thing or to have success. I've, I've listened to a few other the sermons on evangelism and they'll, they'll always be the top three tips, you know, the secret tips to successful evangelism. And uh, the, the Bible doesn't really give us a formula like that. It doesn't work like that. We just faithfully proclaim the gospel everywhere we go and let God work. Because we, and we can do that confidently because we've been sent by God with his power and with his authority. Let's just try and keep that in mind. Let's, let's constantly have the Great Commission on our minds. Think about who are the people that you can be reaching. Even this week, as, as things slowly return to normal, as you get to see more and more people out and about, who are the people that you can be reaching? And, and let's think about that together. That's the, the, the final thing that we see in this passage is that they, Jesus didn't send them out alone. Mission was something that we do together. So I loved it a few weeks ago during our, our Zoom session. Uh, we had a, a, you know, a few of us talking about the different opportunities that we had to share. So let's uh, keep those type of conversations up. Share with one another. Who can we be praying for? Who do I want to try and reach that I haven't had the chance to have this conversation with? And, and more importantly, how can we be praying for one another? How can we be praying for those opportunities? Uh, so let's put that straight into practice after the service. Uh, ask one another, who are the people that you want to reach? How can we be praying for each other? Let's So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have been so gracious to us. You have saved us. You have healed us. You have rescued our souls. And now you call us to increase our faith, to boldly proclaim your goodness. Lord, we ask for strength to do that, Lord. Help our unbelief. Help our lack of faith. Help us, Lord, in our silence. Lord, help us to be bold. Lord God, help us to do it together. Help us to encourage one another and spur one another on to be bold and to proclaim your goodness to a lost and dying world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.